10. Place. 8 or 10 southern ladies and gentlemen at the table pounced upon me. All at once. Yes. They agreed. With a kind of polite violence. Books and plays by Yankees. If. One of the gentlemen explained. You write to a friend who has a family. And say. According to the northern practice. I hope to see you when you come to my town. You write something which is really ambiguous. Since the word you may refer only to your friend. Or may refer also to his family. Our southern you all makes it explicit. I told him that in the north we also use the word all in connection with you. Though we accented the two evenly. And did not compound them. But he seemed to believe that you followed by all belonged exclusively to the south. The argument continued almost constantly throughout the meal. Not until coffee was served did the subject seem to be exhausted, but it was not. For after pouring a demitasse our hostess lifted a lump of sugar in the tongs, and looking me directly in the eye inquired, Do you all take sugar? Undoubtedly it would have been wiser, and politer, to let this pass. But the discussion had filled me with curiosity, not only because of my interest in the localism, but also because of the amazing intensity with which it had been discussed. But, I exclaimed, you just said you all, apparently addressing me. Didn't you use it in the singular? No sooner had I spoken than I was sorry. Everyone looked disconcerted. There was silence for a moment. I was very much ashamed. Oh, Mumber, she said at last. When I said you all I meant you and Mr. Morgan. She pronounced it, Morgan, with a lovely drawl. As she made the statement, she blushed. Poor lady, being to blame for her discomfiture. I could not bear to see her blush and looked away, but only to catch the eye of my companion, and to read in its evil gleam the thought, of course they use it in the singular, but aren't you ashamed of having tripped up such a pretty creature on a point of dialect, though my interest in the southern idiom had caused me to forget about the sugar, my hostess had not forgotten, well, she said, still balancing the lump above the cup, and continuing gamely to put the question in the same form, and to me, do you all take sugar, Oh, not? I had no idea how my companion took his coffee, but it seemed to me that tardy politeness now demanded that I tacitly or at least demi-tacitly accede to the alleged plural intent of the question. Therefore, I replied, Mr. Morgan takes two lumps. I don't take any. Thanks. Late that night as we were returning to our hotel, my companion said to me somewhat tardily, in case such a thing comes up again, I wish you would remember that sugar in my coffee makes me ill. Well. Why didn't you say so? Because, he returned, I thought that you all ought to do the answering. It seemed best for me all to keep quiet and try to look plural under the singular conditions. No single thing I ever wrote has brought to me so many letters, nor letters so uniform in sentiment albeit widely different in expression, as the foregoing, seemingly unimportant tale, printed originally in Collier's Weekly. Someone has pointed out that various communities have fighting words and as the letters poured in I began to realize that in discussing, you all, I had inadvertently hit upon a term which aroused the ire of the South or rather, that I had aroused ire by implying that the expression is sometimes used in the singular the solid South to the contrary notwithstanding. Never, upon any subject, had I known people to agree as my Southern correspondents did on this. The unanimity of their dissent was an impressive thing. So was the violence some of them displayed, for a time, indeed. The heat with which they wrote, obscured the issue, that is to say, most of them instead of explaining merely denied, and added comments, more or less unflattering, concerning me, wrote a lady from Lexington, 
Kentucky, I have lived in Kentucky all of my life, and have never yet heard, you all, used in the singular, not even among the Negroes. My grandparents and friends say they had never heard it, either. It was needless for you to tell your Virginia hostess that, you all, meaning you and your friend were Yankees. The fact that you criticized her language proved it. Southern people pride themselves on their tact, and no doubt, at the time, she was struggling to conceal a smile because of some of your own localisms. Many of the letters were more severe than this one, and most of them made the point that I had been impolite to my hostess, and that, in all probability, when she looked at me and asked, Do you all take sugar? She was playing a joke upon me, apropos the discussion which had preceded the question. For example, this, from a gentleman of Pell City, Alabama, my wife is the residuary legatee of Virginia's language, inherited, acquired and affected varieties, including the vanishing, annihilated, long distance, and irresistible drawl, to quell the unfortunate tumult that has arisen in our household as a result of your last article in, Colliers, I am commanded to advise you that the use of, you all, in the singular is absolutely non-established factum in Virginia, save, perhaps, among the hill people of the Blue Ridge, also, take notice that when your hostess, with apparent inadvertence, used the expression in connection with sugar in your demitasse, the subsequent blush was due to your failure to catch her witticism, ignorantly mistaking it for a lapse of hers, my wife was going to write to you herself, but I managed to divert this cruel determination by promising to uphold the honor of the old dominion, there is already too much blood being shed in the world without spilling that of non-combatants as would have been, you all's, fate had she gone after you with a weapon more mighty than the sword when in the hands of Mr. Wilson or an outraged woman, in face of all this and much more, however, my conviction was unshaken, I talked it over with my companion, he remembered the episode of the dinner table exactly as I did, moreover, I still had my notes, made in the hotel that night, the lady looked at me, my companion was several places removed from her at the other side of the table. How could she have meant to include him? And how could she have expected me to say how he took his after-dinner coffee? At last, to reassure myself, I wrote to the wisest, cleverest, most trustworthy lady in the South, and asked her what it all meant. Well, she wrote back from Atlanta, I will tell you, but I am not sure that you will understand me. The answer is, she did, but she didn't. She looked at and spoke to you and, of course, by all rules of logic she could not have been intending to make you Morgue's keeper in the matter of coffee dressing, but she never would have said you all if Morgue had not been in her mind as joined with you. The response, according to her thought connotation, would have been from you and from him. This was disconcerting. So was a letter, received in the same mail, from a gentleman in Charleston. It is as plain as the nose on your face that you are not yet convinced that we in the South never use, you all, with reference to a one person. The case you mention proves nothing at all. The very fact that there were two strangers present justified the use of the expression, we continually use the expression in that way. And in such cases we expect an answer from both persons so addressed. To illustrate, just a few days ago I carried two girls into an ice cream parlor. After we were seated, I looked at the one nearest me and said, well, what will you all have? Physically we are so constructed that unless a person is cross-headed it is impossible to look at two persons at once, the mere fact that I looked at the one nearest me did not mean that I was not addressing both, I expected an answer from both, and I got it, too as is generally the case where ice cream is concerned, 
The subject is one to which I have devoted the most careful attention for many years. I have been so interested in it that almost unconsciously, whenever I myself use the expression, you all, or hear anyone else use it, I know whether it is intended to refer to one or two more than one person. I have heard thousands of persons, white, black and indifferent, use the expression, and the only ones I have ever heard use it incorrectly are what we might call professional southerners. For instance, last week I went to a vaudeville show, and part of the performance was given by two blackface comedians, calling themselves the Georgia Blossoms. Their dialect was excellent, with the single exception that one of them twice used the expression, you all, where it could not possibly have meant more than one person. And I no sooner heard it than I said to myself, there is one blossom that never bloomed in Georgia. Another instance is the following, I was once approached by a beggar in Atlanta, who saluted me thus, say, Mr. Can't you all give me a nickel? Had I been accompanied it would have been all right. But I was alone, and there was no other person near me except the hobo. Did I give him the nickel? I should say not. I said to myself, he is a damned Yankee trying to pass himself off for a southerner. Horrid glimmerings began to filter dimly through, and yet next day came a letter calling my attention to an article, written years ago by Joel Chandler Harris and Thomas Nelson Page, jointly, in which they plead with northern writers not to misuse the disputed expression by applying it in the singular. That was another shock. I felt conviction tottering, but she did look at me. She didn't expect an answer from my companion. And then behold, a missive from Mr. H.E. Jones a member and a worthy one of the Tallapoosa County Board of Education, and a resident of Dottaville, Alabama. Mr. Jones' educational activities reach far beyond Tallapoosa County, and far beyond the confines of his state, for he has educated me. He has made me see the light. I want to straighten you out, he wrote. Kindly, we never use you all in the singular. Not even the most ignorant do so. But, as you know, that, that was mercifully said. There are some peculiar, almost unexplainable, shades of meaning in local idioms of speech, which are not easy for a stranger to understand. I had a friend who was reared in Milwaukee and is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, who tells me he would have argued the U-all point with all comers for some years following his taking up his residence here, but he is at this time as ready as I to deny the allegation and chaw the alligator. One year young lady, in Virginia, asked, Do you all take sugar? She mentally included Mr. Morgan, and perhaps all other Yankees. I would ask my local grocer, will you all sell me some sugar this morning? Meaning his establishment, collectively. Although I addressed him personally, but I would not ask my only servant, have you all milked the cow? And that is the exact truth. I was absolutely wrong. And though, having printed the ghastly falsehood in my original article, I can hardly hope now for absolution from the outraged South. I can at least retract, as I hereby do, and can, moreover, thank Mr. H.E. Jones, of Tallapoosa County, Alabama, for having saved me from a double sin, for had he not given me the simple illustration of the grocery store, I might have repeated, now, my earlier misstatement, chapter XX idioms and aristocracy southerners have told me that they can tell from what part of the South a person comes, by his speech, just as an Easterner can distinguish, by the same means a New Englander, a New Yorker, a Middle Westerner, and a Brooklynite. I cannot pretend to have become an authority upon Southern dialect, but it is obvious to me that the speech of New Orleans is unlike that of Charleston, and that of Charleston unlike that of Virginia, 
The chief characteristic of the Virginian dialect is the famous and fascinating localism which Professor C. Alfonso Smith has called the vanishing, a sound which causes words like car and garden to be pronounced sire and garden, or, as Professor Smith prefers to indicate it, C-Y-R and G-Y-R-N. I am told that in years gone by the vanishing was common to all Virginians, but though it is still common enough among members of the old generation, and is used also by some young people particularly, I fancy, young ladies, who realize its fetching quality there can be no doubt that it island in both senses, vanishing, and that not half the Virginians of the present day pronounce, cigar, as, cigar, carpet, as, siopet, and, carter, as, siotop. In Virginia and many other parts of the South one hears such words as, and, correctly pronounced with the broad, and such words as tube and new properly given the full sound instead of tube and new as in some parts of the north but on the other hand while the south gives the short sound in such words as log and fog it invariably calls a dog a dog your is often pronounced your sure as sure and not infrequently to as to the south also uses the word carry in a way that strikes northerners as strange If a southerner offers to carry you to the station, or over his plantation, he does not signify that he intends to transport you by means of physical strength, but that he will escort you. If he carries you to the run, you will find that the run is what northerners call a creek, if to the branch, or green, that is what we call a brook. This use of the word carry, far from being a corruption, is pure old English, and is used in the Bible, and by Smollett. Though it is amusing to note that the Georgia Gazetteer, for 1837, mentions as a lamentable provincialism such an application of the word as to carry instead of lead a horse to a water. If the Gazetteer were indeed correct in this, then the book of Genesis contains an American provincialism. The customary use of the word in the North, as to carry a cane, or a bag, is equally but no more correct than the Southern usage. I am informed by Mr. W.T. Hall, editor of the Dothan, Alabama, Eagle that the word used in his part of the country, as signifying, to bear on the back, or shoulder, is, tote. Tote, is a word not altogether unknown in the north, and it has recently found its way into some dictionaries, though the old, Georgia Gazetteer, disapproved of it, even this word has some excuse for being, in that it is a deformed member of a good family, having come from the Latin, tolet, been transformed into the early English, tolt, and thus into what I believe to be a purely American word. Other expressions which struck me as being characteristic of the South are, stop by, as for instance, I will stop by for you, meaning, I will call for you in passing, don't guess, as, I don't guess I'll come, and, yes indeedy, which seems to be a kind of emphatic, yes indeed, as I look back over the old South, said one white-haired Virginian, there were two things it was above, one was accounts and the other was grammar. Tradesmen in prosperous neighborhoods were always in distress because of the long credits, though gambling debts were, of course, always punctiliously paid. As to the English spoken in Old Virginia and indeed in the whole South there is absolutely no doubt that its softness and its peculiarities in pronunciation are due to the influence of the Negro voice and speech on the white race. Some of the young people seem to wish to dispute this, but we older ones used to take the view half humorously. Of course that if a southerner spoke perfect English, it showed he wasn't a gentleman, that he hadn't been raised with niggers around him. Oh, you shouldn't tell him that, broke in a lady who was present. Why not, demanded the old gentleman. He'll print it, she said. Well, 
He answered, Ain't it true? What's the harm in it? There, she exclaimed, You said ain't. He'll print that Virginians say ain't. Well, he answered, I reckon we do, don't we? She laughed and gave up. I remember, she told me, the very spot on the turnpike going out to a repunk, where I made up my mind to break myself of saying ain't. But I want to tell you that we are talking much better English than we used to. Even the Negroes are. You don't hear many white people saying gwine for going anymore. For instance, and the young people don't say set for sit and get forget, as their fathers did. I've heard folks say, though, put in the old gentleman, that they'd rufer speak like a Virginian and speak correctly. The old talk was pretty nice. After all, I don't hold to all these new improvements. They've been going too far in this commonwealth. What have they been doing? I asked. Doing? He returned. Why? They're gradually taking the cuspidors out of the church pews. Before the question of dialect is dropped, it should be said that those who do not believe the soft southern pronunciation is derived from Negroes, can make out an interesting case. If, they ask, the Negro has corrupted the English of the South, why is it that he has not also corrupted the language of the West Indies British and French? French Negroes speak like French persons of white blood, and British West Indian Negroes often speak the Cockney dialect, without a trace of nigger. Moreover, it is pointed out that in southern countries, the world over, there is a tendency to soften the harsh sounds of language, to elide, and drop out consonants. The Andalusians speak a Spanish comparable in many of its peculiarities with the English of our own South, and the South Italians exhibit similar dialectic traits, nor do the parallels between the North and South of Spain and Italy, and of the United States, and there. The North Italians and North Spaniards are the Yankees of their respective countries the shrewd, cold business people whereas the South Italians and South Spaniards are more poetic, more dashing, more temperamental. The merchants are of the North of Spain, but the dancers and bullfighters are Andalusians, and just as our Americans of the North admire the lazy dialect of the South, so the North Spaniards admire the dialect of Andalusia and even imitate it because they think it has a fashionable sound quite as British fashionables cultivate the habit of dropping final s as in hunting for hunting. Virginia, more than any other state I know of, feels its entity as a state. If you meet a Virginian traveling outside his state, and ask where he is from, he will not mention the name of the city in which he resides, but will reply, I'm from Virginia. If, on the other hand, you are in Virginia, and ask him the same question, he will proudly reply, I'm from Fauquier, or I'm from Westmoreland, or whatever the name of his county may be. The chances are, also, that his trunks and traveling bags will be marked with his initials, followed not by the name of his town, but by the abbreviation, VA. I was told of one old and reconstructed Virginian who had to go to Boston on business. The gentleman he went to see there was exceedingly polite to him, asking him to his house, putting him up at his club and showing him innumerable courtesies. The old confederate, writing to his wife, indicated his amazement, although he is not a Virginian. He declared, I must confess that he lives like a gentleman. The name of his Bostonian acquaintance was John Quincy Adams. I heard this story from a northern lady who has a country place near a small town in Virginia. In the north this lady's family is far from being unknown. But in Virginia, she assured me, all persons originating outside the state are looked upon as vague beings without family. They seem to think, she said, that northerners have no parents that they are made chemically. This does not imply, however, 
that well-bred northerners are excluded from society, even if they are well off they may get into society, for though money does not count in one's favor in such a town, it does not count against one, the social requirement of the place is simple, if people are nice people, that is enough, of course, however, it is one thing to be admitted to Virginia society and another to belong to it by right, a case in point is that of a lady visiting in a Virginia city who, while calling at the house of some f.f.v single quote s. was asked by a little girl, the daughter of the house, where she had been born, Moffat, said the little girl's mother, after the caller had departed, you must not ask people where they were born, if they were born in Virginia they will tell you so without asking, and if they weren't born in Virginia it's very embarrassing, some of the old families of the inner circle are in a tragic state of decay, owing to inbreeding, others, in a more wholesome physical and mental condition, are perpetually wrestling with the heritage of poverty left over from the war, too proud to whitewash and too poor to paint, clinging desperately to the old acres, and to the old houses which are like beautiful, tired ancestral ghosts. Until a few years ago the one resource of Virginian gentlewomen in need of funds was to take boarders, but more lately the daughters of distinguished but poverty-stricken families have found that they may work in offices. Thus, in the town of which I speak, Several ladies who are very much in society support themselves by entertaining, paying guests, while others are stenographers. The former, I was told, by the way, make it a practice to avoid first-hand business contacts with their guests by sending them their bills through the mail, and requiring that response be made by means of the same impersonal channel. Chapter XXI The Confederate Capital The axis of the earth sticks out visibly through the center of each and every town or city. Oliver Wendell Holmes Richmond is the Boston of Virginia, Norfolk it's New York. The comparison does not, of course, hold in all particulars. Richmond being, for instance, larger than Norfolk, and not a seaport. Yet, on the other hand, Boston manages, more than any seaport that I know of, to conceal from the visitor the signs of its maritime life, wherefore Richmond looks about as much like a port as does the familiar part of Boston. The houses on the principal residence streets of Richmond are not built in such close ranks as Boston houses, they have more elbow room, numbers of them have yards and gardens, and there is not about Richmond houses the Bostonian insistence upon red brick, nevertheless many houses of both cities, give off the same suggestion of having long been lived in by the descendants of their builders. So, too, though the capital at Richmond has little architectural resemblance to Boston's gold-owned state house the former having been copied by Thomas Jefferson from the Maison Carey at Nimes, and being a better building than the Massachusetts state house, and better placed the to-do, nevertheless, suggest each other in their gray granite solidity. It is perhaps in the quality of solidity architectural, commercial, social, even spiritual that Richmond and Boston are most alike. Substantialness, conservatism, tradition, and prosperity rest like gray mantles over both. Broad Street in Richmond is two or three times as wide as Grandy Street, Norfolk's chief shopping street, and for this reason, doubtless, its traffic seems less, though I believe it is in fact greater, a fine street to look upon at night, with its long, even rows of clustered boulevard lights, and its bright windows. Broad Street in the daytime is a disappointment, because, for all its fine spaciousness, it lacks good buildings, I must confess, too, that I was disappointed in the appearance of the women in the shopping crowds on Broad Street, for, as everyone knows, Richmond has been famous for its beauties, 
in vain I looked for young women fitted to inherit the debutante mantles of such nationally celebrated beauties as Miss Irene Langhorne Mrs. Charles Dana Gibson, Miss Mayhandy Mrs. James Brown Potter, Miss Lizzie Bridges Mrs. Hobson, and Miss Sally Bruce Mrs. Arthur B. Kinsolving. In the ten years between 1900 and 1910 the population of Richmond increased 50%. Her population by the last census was about 130.000, of which a third is colored. Norfolk's population is about 70.000, with approximately the same percentage of Negroes. In both cities there is much new building offices downtown, and pretty new brick homes in outlying suburban tracts. Likewise, in both. The charming signs of other days are here and there to be seen. Richmond is again like its ancient enemy, Boston, in the wealth of its historical associations, and I know of no city which gives the respectful heed to its own history that Richmond does, and no state which in this matter equals the state of Virginia. If Richmond was the center of the South during the Civil War, Capitol Square was, as it is today, the center of that center, in the square, in the shadow of Jefferson's beautiful classic Capitol building which has the glowing gray tone of one of those watercolors done on tinted paper by Jules Durin. Confederate soldiers were mustered into service under Leon Jackson. Within the old building the Confederate Congress met. Aaron Burr was tried for treason, and George Washington saw, in its present position, his own statue by Hoon. Across the way from the square, where the post office now stands, was the Treasury Building of the Confederate States, and there Jefferson Davis appeared seven times to be tried for treason, only to have his case postponed by the federal government, and finally dismissed. East of the square is the state library, containing a remarkable collection of portraits and documents, including likenesses of all governors of Virginia from John Smith to Tyler, a portrait of Pocahontas, and the bail bond of Jefferson Davis, signed by Horace Greeley, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Jared Smith, and 17 other distinguished men of the day. To the west of the square is Old Street Paul's Church, with the pews of Leanne Davis. It was while attending service in this church, on Sunday, April 2, 1865, that Davis received Lee's telegram from Petersburg, saying that Richmond must be evacuated. A block or two west of the church, in East Franklin Street, is a former residence of Lee. It was given by the late Mrs. Joseph Bryan and her sisters to the Virginia Historical Society, and is now appropriately enough, the home of that organization, in the old drawing room, now the office of the Historical Society, I found Mr. William G. Stannard, the corresponding secretary, and from him heard something of Lee's life there immediately after the war, by the northerners in Richmond at that time, including the federal troops stationed in the city, Lee was of course respected and admired, while by the whole South he was, and is today, adored, as for his own ex-soldiers, they could not see him without emotion, and because of the demonstrations which invariably attended his appearance on the Richmond streets, he went out but little, passing much time upon the back porch of the house. Here most of the familiar Brady photographs of him were taken. Brady sent a young photographer to Richmond to get the photographs. Lee was at first disposed to refuse to be taken, but his family persuaded him to submit, on the ground that if there were any impertinence in the request it was not the fault of the young man and that the latter might lose his position if he failed to obtain the desired pictures. Finding the continued attention of the crowds too much for him, the general left Richmond after two months, removing to a small house in Cumberland County, on the James, 
and it was there that he was residing when called to the presidency of Washington College now Washington and Lee University at Lexington, Virginia. As is well known, he accepted this offer, built up the institution, remained its president until the time of his death, and now lies buried in the university chapel. To Mr. Stannard I am also indebted for the following information regarding John Smith and Pocahontas, about a mile below Richmond, in what is now the Brickyard region. There used to stand the residence of the Mayo family, a place known as Powhatan. This place has long been planned out as the scene of the saving of Smith by the Indian girl, but late research indicates that, though Smith did come up the James to the present site of Richmond, his capture by the Indians did not occur here, but in the vicinity of Jamestown. Then Indians took him first to one of their villages on York River, near the present site of West Point, Virginia, and thence to a place, on the same stream, in the county of Gloucester, where the tribal chief resided. I was under the impression that this worthy's name was Powhatan, but Mr. Stannard declared, Powhatan, was not a proper name, but an Indian word meaning, chief. The Virginia Historical Society is satisfied that Smith was rescued by Pocahontas at a point about nine miles from Williamsburg on the west side of York River, but there are historians who contend that the whole story of the rescue is a fiction. One of these is Dr. Albert Bushnell Hart, of Harvard, who lists Smith among, historical liars, Virginians, who regard Smith as one of their proudest historical possessions, are somewhat disposed to resent this view but it appears to me that there is at least some ground for it. Matthew Page Andrews, another historian, himself a Virginian, points out that many of our ideas of the Jamestown colony have been obtained from Smith's history of the settlement, which he wrote in England, some years after leaving Virginia. From these accounts, says Mr. Andrews, we get an unfavorable impression of Smith's associates in the colony and of the management of the men composing the popular or people's party in the London Company. As we now know that this party in the London Company was composed of very able and patriotic Englishmen, we are inclined to think that Captain Smith not only overrated his achievement, but was very unjust to his fellow colonists and the company. The story of the rescue of Smith by Pocahontas, with the strong implication that the Indian girl was in love with him, comes to us from Smith himself. We know that when Pocahontas was 19 years of age seven years after the Smith rescue was said to have occurred, she married John Rolfe the first Englishman to begin the cultivation of the tobacco plant. We know that she was taken to England, that she was W.